And now, back to David Spada and Elliot Harris for more sports and torts on TalkZone.com. We are back on sports and torts on TalkZone.com. Now we have, I think, one of the best interviews that David and I have ever conducted with former basketball player, former senator, and presidential hopeful, the Honorable Bill Bradley. Now, the first recollection I have of you is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Crystal City playing in the Normandy Christmas Tournament many, many years ago. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds right. Cause I can yeah, remember that what, was back in 1958, 59, 60. Right, cause I can remember uh, stories in the St. Louis Globe Democrat back then about this kid, Bill Bradley. Yeah. We always look forward to that tournament. That was our chance to play against some of the large St. Louis schools. You know, I, I won't say Crystal City's in the middle of nowhere. But it's it, actually 35 miles south of St. Louis, but the right. population is only 3,400 people. So it's a tiny place compared to – and we had 96 in my high school graduating class. So compared to some of the St. Louis schools, big city schools that have, you know, 800 or 1,000, it, it was tiny. At what point did you know you were good at basketball? Uh, probably in the seventh grade, <clears throat> sixth, seventh grade, I was taller. So <clears throat> I had, you know, encouraged to play. And then I really kind of enjoyed playing. Um, but my real uh, moment came, uh, right after my freshman year in college when, uh, I went to a basketball camp given by, uh, Ed McCauley, who was a basketball pro from St. Louis and uh, we were all assembled on the floor every morning for a lecture from one of the coaches and one morning he said uh, remember if you're not practicing and somebody somewhere is practicing when you two meet given roughly equal ability he will win and that made a big impression on me and I decided that I was never going to lose because I did not work my opponent and so that led to practice routines in high school of, um, you know, from from June until um, March or April every year. I'd do five days, uh, three hours a day, five days a week, and five hours on Saturday and Sunday, and doing to build my game. When you did that, was that just you by yourself? Uh, well, the, during the week in the fall, it was me by myself. Um, in the winter, of course, we had a team. And then on the weekends, uh, there were games. We played games. People came back and played. I see that you initially decided to go to Duke. Then you switched to Princeton. Was there a reason for that? Yeah, it's an interesting story. Um, I signed an athletic scholarship to Duke in early May of 1961. And my father said, you know, you ought to, I want to give you a trip to Europe, which was, I was flabbergasted. Here I am in this little town in Missouri. My father wants to say, let me take, give you a trip to Europe. So I went on a, a trip with, um, out of Chicago, actually. It was run by a Chicago um, travel group. And we ended up, uh, it would be 13 girls and me 
So I'm from suburban <laughs> Chicago. So we toured all over Europe, and one afternoon we got into Oxford. It was a beautiful June afternoon, and I thought to myself, when I walked in Christchurch uh, College in the quad and the green grass and the sun and the older buildings, gee, someday I want to come back here. So I returned from the trip, played baseball, as I always did, broke my foot, um, started reading books about Oxford, contemplated the world without basketball, read in the books that Princeton had more Rhodes Scholars than any other, um, read about a, a scholarship called Rhodes Scholar, and then read that Princeton had more Rhodes Scholars than any other university. And so uh, the freshman class of Princeton was to uh, begin on a Monday and the Duke class on a Wednesday. And I'd already had the curtains measured in my room at, uh, in Durham. And I came home from a date on Friday night and woke my parents up and said, look, I want to go to Princeton. They called. My father called the next day, an alumnus in St. Louis. And on Sunday, I was on a plane to New Jersey, arriving in Princeton around 11, 12 o'clock at night. And at 8 o'clock the next morning, I was in the freshman class. <laughs> well, how stunned were your parents at that decision? My parents weren't stunned at all. My father was pleased, I think. But uh, my my mother, of course, wanted me to go to Duke. But um, you know, she she quickly accepted things. I know Dick Grote must not have been too happy because he was one of the famous Duke alumni back at that time. Well, yeah, but the, I remember um, I arrived at Princeton on a Sunday. On a Monday, I was in the freshman class at their big convocation. On Wednesday, I was walking across the campus and ran into the basketball coach who was flabbergasted that I was there. Now, what do you think the chance of that would be today that the basketball coach didn't know? And But I wrote a long letter to the coach, uh, Vic Bubis at uh, Duke, and told him uh, why I was going to do what I was going to do, and I appreciated his... Uh, his uh, generosity and his interest in me. Does the basketball coach at Princeton do, start doing cartwheels when he finds out Bill Bradley's on campus? Well, I guess he did, uh, <laughs> you know. And at that time, of course, there was he had to play freshman, so I played freshman basketball and um, then played varsity the rest of three years. Your coach was Butch Van Vredekoff. What was he like to play for? He was great. He was a wonderful coach. He was a total uh, free flow, um, innovative, innovation-oriented coach. There were no rigid rules, no plays. But he taught you how to play the game in terms of spacing the floor, in terms of movement, in terms of helping out. He uh, was very uh, strong on defense, on offense. He he liked to see players move. And so we played uh, a lot of fast break. We played a lot of uh, two-on-two, three-on-three, and uh, the other two guys had to know what to do. And the way he would coach is we'd be just scrimmaging, and he'd blow the whistle and say, stop. He'd say, see where you are, see where you are. You shouldn't be there. You should be over here for this the following reason. This is what we want to do. This is basic basketball, you know. It's a pick and roll or it's an inside screen or it's a, uh, you know, whatever. How surprised were you when Princeton went to the Final Four? 
Well, uh, obviously, I thought we should have won it. And uh, we didn't, and so it's been a great disappointment. I thought when we beat uh, Providence for the Eastern Regional Finals in, uh, in uh, 1965, I remember the night before there were the semifinals, and uh, uh, Providence, when it beat its semifinal opponent, cut down the net because it was so sure that they were going to beat this little Ivy League team. But we beat them 109 to 69. And it was one of the best games that I ever played in with my teammates um, in pro or college. And then we went to Portland for the Final Four. Our first opponent was Michigan. We'd had a big duel with them in the Holiday Festival in New York City where we were ahead by about 14 points two minutes to go. I fouled out. They won in the last second shot by Kazzy Russell. So this was the rematch. And uh, they beat us uh, by more than a few points. I think about eight, nine points, something like that. Yeah, but that was, that was a pretty good team. I, Cassie Russell, Bill Button, you know. Yeah, people. they were good, they were a good team, but we were a good team too. So right. we, you know, we thought we should have won. So we weren't surprised. Oh, here we are. We expected to be there. That was the whole attitude of the team. And it's rare for a person to be the MVP of the Final Four when their team doesn't win the championship. Yeah, I guess that's so. Um, I don't know if that's happened before, but that's probably related to the last game, you know. You know, the last game, um, which was a a consolation game, um, I was playing, you know, the regular game. We were playing Wichita State, and I'd throw the ball to my teammate if he was open. Suddenly I noticed he was throwing it back to me, and I'd throw it back to him. And the coach called timeout. This is about five minutes into the game. And he said, Bradley, this is your last game. Shoot the ball. And so I did. And uh, that's the 58-point night, um, 22 of 29 and, I don't know, 16 of 16, something like that. And I think that's largely why this other thing happened. I don't really keep these statistics in my mind forever. It's because somebody – about two weeks ago, sent me a box score from that, from that game. That's how I, why I knew the statistics. Well, well I, I think Ben Bredikoff's, uh critique of you is you were too unselfish. Yeah, well, he wanted to change that the last game. Would you guys have been more successful had you been more selfish? No, I think we were playing successful. And then you were one of the youngest players on that Olympic team at 64. That's right, yeah. That was a great experience, a great experience to represent your country and to, uh, you know, stand on the podium with the gold medal and watch your um, flag being raised during the playing of the national anthem and chills going up and down your spine. That's a... It's a great experience. As far as the basketball, you know, we were much better than others. Um, we beat the Russians in the final, but the toughest game was against the Yugoslavs in the semis. Was there much pressure on the 64 team after the 60 team that, you know, had Oscar Roberts and Jerry West, you know, it was a, a lineup of uh, future NBA stars? Yeah, no, we didn't think about who the past was at all. We were only interested in winning in 64. 
Did you dream of playing in the NBA after college, or did you just want to go on with your life and become a successful businessman at that time? Well, you know, when I was um, in college, I was uh, drafted uh, by New York, and uh, I knew that I didn't want to play uh, right away, so I told them no, I wasn't interested, and went to Oxford, and then I was at Oxford in my in the, in the first year I was there. I played in Italy with an Italian team, an Italian meatpacking firm in Milano, and we won the European Cup. But that was only two games a month. You know, you'd play one game in Milano, one game somewhere else, and the winner would be the total points of both games. Needless to say, it put a real premium on home court advantage. Uh, then I didn't play my second year at Oxford, but Oxford finally got a gymnasium after 600, 800 years. And um, I was down there alone, like I used to do in high school, dribbling, shooting, feeling the, the rhythm of things. And I knew that I wanted to play the game again. And I knew that not to play the game would have been to deny something in me probably more fundamental than anything else. So I called the Knicks and said, okay, let's talk. And a few weeks later, I signed a contract. And the rest is history. <laughs> ben Kerner with the St. Louis Hawks didn't try to somehow wrangle you? To- uh, well, no, although, no, he didn't try to wrangle me because, you know, New York had the rights. Right. But um, but Bob Pettit uh, was uh, played a big role in my life at that stage. You know, he was a, he was a great pro toward the end of his career, and he came down to Princeton my senior year and encouraged me to play and said anything I ever wanted to talk to him about would be great. But I wanted to go to Oxford, and it's strange, you know, I had dinner with Bob Pettit uh, probably two months ago. Wow, he still looks the same. Still has the same blue cashmere uh, top. I don't know. I don't know about it. <laughs> he, he, but he's still, you know, he looks like he's in shape. Yeah. Well, what was it like playing for the great Red Holtzman? Well, it was great. Red was a great coach of men. Um, he wouldn't have been a good college coach, but he was a great pro coach. And he had. Uh, Three rules. One is hit the open man. Second was help out on defense. Third was the hotel bar belongs to me. <laughs> and, you know, he, he, uh, he insisted, uh, he opened it up. Players made suggestions. Everybody was a part of it. He didn't try to force rigid plays. I mean, you know, on offense, we'd go over and in timeout say, what do we want to run? And Frazier would say, how about this? Or the Busher would say, how about that? And usually guys would say, okay. And if not, holds and yeah, let's do that. And um, it wasn't a matter of him forcing uh, his structure on the offense. On defense, on the other hand, he was uh, absolutely um, – demanding that you help out on defense. Was the transition to the pro game difficult? You know, the thing, the thing about Holzman, here I, I see in the NBA today, there are teams that have six coaches, right? Yeah. Well, there was one coach, Red Holzman, and a trainer, Danny Whalen. Those are the only two people. And, and you know, I guess we've specialized ourselves in everything, including basketball. But he uh, he got an awful lot out of the players 
despite his leadership. And he wasn't somebody that in the locker room he'd, you know, create chills and make you inspired. He was very businesslike. We're going to go do this tonight. This is what we do. This is what we don't do. If you were doing it, you stayed in. If you didn't, you came out. You knew why you came out. <clears throat> Where did the nickname Dollar Bill come from? Uh, well, it's a debatable point. Uh, some people say it was because I, uh, I, uh, at the time I signed, I had a large salary. Um, and of course now it's peanuts. Right. Um, others say that it was because I was the person who took the money shot at the end of the game on many occasions. And the third was uh, that they wanted to provide an incentive for me to go buy new clothes because I looked as if I had been mugged in Central Park. <laughs> so Walt Frazier never shared his wardrobe with you? No way. <laughs> Although Dick Barnett took me to get a couple of suits, Edwardian suits, which I wore some. And then I reverted to uh, blue jeans and an army jacket. <laughs> What was Phil Jackson like as a teammate? He was a great teammate. He was a great teammate, and he was a great roommate. And when DeBusher left, uh, he became my roommate. And uh, he had all the qualities that you'd later see in his great run with the Bulls and the Lakers. He, uh, he was analytical about the game. He was totally unselfish. He was a hard worker. He cared about his teammates, and he cared about them in an individual way. And he had a great strategic sense of the game. And uh, I really think, you know, in the second year, he uh, injured his back. And so he was out for the year, and he sat on the bench next to Holzman the whole time. And I think he would tell you that was a moment when he really learned basketball. How did you determine who was going to get the ball or the last shot. I mean, you had five Hall of Famers you played with, Reed, the Busher, yourself, yeah. Monroe, and Frazier. Well, that's a, that was really one of the best things about our team. Any one of our, any one of us would take the last second shot. Sometimes you see there are two guys that want to take the last second shot and three guys that, oh, God, don't throw me the ball. I don't <laughs> want to take the last second shot. And in our case, you know, some nights it was me on a play. Some nights it was uh, Frazier. Some nights it was Reed. Um, you know, it just, it, it, uh, it, it was everybody, wh wh whoever Holzman thought would be good at that time against the team we were playing was the call. And often, of course, the, the uh, call didn't work. And so rather than force the shot, you move the ball and, Somebody that wasn't even called ended up taking the last second shot. And if he missed it, nobody in the team grumbled because they knew tomorrow's another day and we're all together and any one of us could make it and any one of us could miss it. How did you know when it was time to call it a, a career playing basketball? Uh, when my interest in basketball was waning and my interest in politics was uh, growing. And, you know, when those two curves crossed, I knew it was time. Also, our team had changed. Um, we had a very selfless team that was uh, a great mesh of personality. And, you know, when DeBusher left and then uh, Lucas left and 
Willis was gone. It wasn't quite the same team. Who was the smartest guy on that team? You, Lucas, DeBusher? I mean, you had a lot of intellectuals. Jackson, you had a lot of intellectuals on that team. Well, yeah, we had our 40th anniversary of the 73 championship team uh, last year. I have a radio program on Sirius XM called American Voices, and I did two hours of interviews with the uh, with uh, Fraser, Monroe, Lucas, Reed, Jackson, and me. And we just talked about uh, the game. And I think if you hear that, you get a sense of, uh, you know, what kind of people we were and how dedicated we were to each other. And um, I think that that, that comes through uh, very clearly in those tapes. And, you know, there you can be smart intellectually, and the smartest guy on the team, just in terms of raw brain power, was Jerry Lucas, who had a photographic memory. I mean, literally had a photograph or has a photographic memory. I mean, one night I saw him in a party after a game, and Bobby Fisher was there, and Lucas, the great chess player, and Lucas said, I've memorized the first 163 pages of the New York phone book, every phone number in the first column. And Fisher said, impossible. And he said, well, come, come test me. And they went in the other room, and Fisher opened the book, page 83, and said six down from the top, and Lucas said four two two one one nine nine, and that's what it was. <laughs> so he he was he was uh, he was a phenom in intelligence, but he also had great basketball intelligence, and that's the other kind of intelligence. And what the team had was great basketball intelligence, and more importantly, a great character of people who knew that the important thing was winning, not scoring, and we were going to do anything each of us could do to help the other. And in doing so, we would all win. Now, on your American Voices program, you uh, generally find a celebrity and ask them what their favorite place in America is. What is your favorite place? Oh, I don't know. Probably the banks of Mississippi and the town I grew up in, in St. Louis. That's uh, in south of St. Louis, that little town. That's always a very spiritual place for me. But I also... Um, Love New York, of course, and uh, San Francisco and the Olympic Peninsula. Did you have a favorite moment in the NBA? Did I ever what? Have a favorite moment when you played? Well, no. I mean, the two big moments were winning two championships. So that moment of triumph is always etched in your mind. I mean, there you are. You're... You're standing there, your fists are raised in the air, your smile is so broad it aches, chills are running up and down your spine, and you realize you're the best in the world. And that feeling lasts for about 48 hours. And then you have to realize, well, now you got to go back and try to win again. As Bill Russell said, it's easier to become number one than stay number one. Now, how does a guy who grew up in a Republican household end up as a Democratic senator from New Jersey? Good sense. He has good sense. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, in my case, you know, I, you know, in 1960 when I was in high school, the Kennedy Nixon election, and I wore a Nixon pin to high school because my father was a Republican. And I hadn't formed my views. I didn't went to college. I read history. 
I read um, which party was there for people in great need and who made the big decisions to save the, save the country in the Depression. And then, of course, um, I remember between my junior and senior year, I went and did a program in Washington called uh, Princeton in Washington. And I worked for a congressman. And then I was in the Senate chamber the night the 1964 Civil Rights Act passed that desegregated uh, public accommodations. Uh, hard to believe there was a time in this country where that was needed, but there it is. And when that happened, I listened to the Republicans voting, and I looked at Goldwater, who was the Republican nominee, and he voted no. And at that moment, I said, I'm no longer Republican, I'm a Democrat, and I cast my first ballot ever for Lyndon Johnson in 1964. When you ran against Al Gore for President 2000, did you ever think to yourself now, you know what, if I would have beat him, there would not have been a George Bush or not have been a, the Persian Gulf War or any of this, it would all have been different? Yeah, oh my gosh. I think about that, you know, every day. I also think, though, that if Al had won, it probably wouldn't have been as big a fiscal catastrophe as uh, occurred during Bush's term, taking a trillion-dollar budget surplus and turning it into a trillion-dollar deficit. Uh, and I don't think he would be involved in the wars. I know I would not have been. You are a prolific author. How, how do you have the time for that? Well, you just, you know, writing for me, that's the one piece of continuity in my life. You know, I was in basketball, I was in politics, and now I'm in business. But the one thing that I do throughout all that time is write in terms of six or seven books and um, two about basketball and you know, for about our culture, economy, and politics. Uh, so writing for me is I live life for a few years, and then I get a concept in my mind, and then I start to read around the concept, which I love doing, and then start to write. And I find the time depends on when you're speaking of, in terms of the memoir of the Senate, which I wrote while I was still in the Senate, I'd get up and do it early in the morning and then late at night, occasionally take a day if there was a break. In terms of my last books, I would, you know, work mornings. When you go on book tours, do people recognize you as Bill Bradley the politician, Bill Bradley the basketball player? Uh, if they're over 50, maybe 45, it's uh, first the player. If you're under 50, it's probably the senator. When you were on the Senate, did you co-ming or did you uh, mingle with the Republican senators, or were there basically a split? I mean, did you hang out with Jim Bunning? I don't have a faintest idea who had what uh, beliefs in on the Knicks. Did you say on the Knicks or the or the? No, when you were in the Senate, did oh, you? Oh, in the Senate. Right. Oh yeah, sure. Jack Kemp was a good friend. Uh, Al Simpson was a dear friend, still is to this day. Uh, Jack Danforth was uh, a terrific friend. Uh, Dick Luger was one of the finest senators I ever served with. And, you know, we had regular interaction. We had dinner at each other's houses. I remember Simpson came to Jersey Shore for 
a weekend with his wife, Ann, and then we went to Cody, Wyoming at 4th of July to visit with them. So there was a, there was a real connection, human connection among people. And that's what you need if you're going to forge compromise because you have to have trust and you don't have trust when you know who the other person is. Well, in your book, We All Can Do Better, you talk about working together. And in this day and age, it seems like one side wants only what it wants and the other side wants only what it wants. Yeah, and, I think the partisanship has become uh, unproductive for the country. It's uh, not something that I think uh, serves us well. We don't make the big decisions that we need to make, whether it's about infrastructure, you know, just look at the highways and public transit systems and uh, air traffic control systems, and, you know, they're all eroding right in front of our eyes, and yet we don't do anything about them. Or look at the schools. There's got to be a sense of urgency. Now, President Obama... That's probably one of his finest things. And Arnie Duncan right there from Chicago, he's done an incredible job. So I'll give them both a lot of credit on education. Uh, but, you know, there are big things that need to be addressed in the country. And if you don't address them, then, you know, things fall further and further behind, not the least of which is, you know, just what's happened to the middle class. I saw a study the other day where consumption is now upper class and lower is mid, not middle class, and um, and that's unfortunate. And when there's not consumption by the middle class, companies that serve the middle class, whether they're restaurants or whatever, they have economic problems. And what's to, what is characterized America is that the broad middle class advanced and advanced uh, on a, a upward trajectory for several decades. And now it's been stalled since the uh, mid-90s. And that has profound ramifications for what America is in people's minds. What the politicians today have to look at is George H. Bush and Bill Clinton. They're Republican and Democrat, but they're some of the tightest friends around. They should work together like those two have become friends. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, you find ex-presidents are in a small club, so it's not hard to get to know each other. And after you're out of office, you don't lose the impulse to do good. And both those people uh, are good men, so they got together, which is great. But, you know, the idea is you got to do that while you're in office. And I think actually both of them probably tried. I'll tell you, one president who gets doesn't get a fair shake, who I think was one of our best, was Nixon, though. Richard Nixon? Well, if you look at what Richard Nixon <coughs> actually accomplished – accomplished a very um, liberal agenda. You know, he was thought of as a conservative. And, but Nixon today, if you look at the Republican Party and the Tea Party, certainly, would have been considered to be a, a super liberal. You know, he wanted to have the first uh, uh, health care, catastrophic health insurance bill. He uh, passed the first environmental, second environmental legislation after LBJ. He uh, um, did affirmative action. I mean, you know, he had a, he had did housing. He had a very liberal, he was like a Disraeli figure. He was conservative, but he also believed that government could still do things to improve a lot of the American people. Yeah, and he opened the doors to China. 
Yeah, China, definitely. So, but he, he had his failings as well. Do, do you miss the political life? You know, um, I, I don't. Um, occasionally I wish I was on the Senate floor when a big debate was taking place and so my voice could be heard, but essentially I, I don't. I don't miss it. I had uh, 20 great years, 18 in the Senate and two running for president. Um, so I think I served my country honorably. And um, now life moves on. So now I'm on the sidelines and I write books and call and offer my advice, which is never, no, I should say, rarely taken, but I offer. <laughs> You've met a lot of famous people in your life. Is there one person that stands out that you kind of think to yourself, I can't believe I met this person? Um, can't believe I met the person. Or it was a true honor to meet this person. Well, there are probably a lot. Uh, I remember my first handshake with LBJ. I mean, you know, he was a giant. Um, he did more in America for the American people than any president since FDR. Uh, so he would be there. Mikhail Gorbachev would be in that group of people who had a special quality that set him apart from other Soviet officials and indeed was central to the end of the Cold War. Um, I would say um, uh, I think that shaking hands with the Pope is also a big thrill. Um, and um, I think those are those are three big ones. As you look forward, what do you see the future for Bill Bradley being? Well, I'm in, I enjoy what I'm doing now. I work for a small um, merchant bank in New York called Allen & Company, and I represent clients um, in their dealings, whether it's uh, raising capital or going public or uh, you know, advising on purchases of other companies. I also uh, do a little venture capital, which I really like because, you know, what was I going to do when I was in politics? Well, I wanted to change the world. I like associating with young people who have an idea and they think it will change the world. It's a positive and forward-looking idea. So I love doing what I'm doing <clears throat> here. <laughs> I also love... Uh, um, doing my radio show on Sirius XM called American Voices. It's on every week on the POTUS channel. Uh, and it's a channel, you know, it's where I interview people about their lives. I mean, people say, what do I miss about politics? Well, I miss not doing public policy 24 hours a day. And then <clears throat> I miss, it. I miss uh, uh, you know, not not interacting with people. This gives me a chance to interact with people. You don't hear the interviews on the rugby radio with these superstars or former greats like the Sam Jones. Yeah, right. You guys are doing a great job. What a great archive you're building. Thank it's, you very much. It's you got to give it to the Hall of Fame. I bet they'd love it. Yeah, we can do that. I mean, Jack Twyman talked to us for 45 minutes. Yeah. Well, there we are. Thank you. Is, is the... One overriding characteristic that is uh, accounts for your success is that discipline. Uh, well, yeah, I wrote a book called Values of the Game in 1998, 
in which I discuss the values you learn playing basketball, uh, or at least that I learned. Other people can learn it, you know, playing the French horn or or uh, doing dance or or even writing. And uh, discipline was clearly one of the big ones. It was probably the bedrock. My story about Ed McCauley, practicing, practicing, practicing. Uh, discipline's important, but I also think imagination's important, being able to conceive and see things differently than other people do. I think that selflessness is uh, really an important part of uh, playing the game, but also, I think, of life. On my radio show, I do one interview every week of somebody who's doing something selfless in their community, like the guy that shined shoes at the Pittsburgh Children's Hospital for 46 years. And out of every tip, he put a portion of that tip into a fund to pay for poor kids' health care. Wow. And the day I interviewed him, he put over $100,000 into that fund. So, I mean, selflessness, imagination, discipline. Yeah, the bedrock is discipline, I guess. Um, but you have to be flexible enough to imagine, and you have to be, uh, you know, selfless enough to recognize the importance of working together with other people. Do we give you credit for the Super Bowl going to New Jersey, or was that somebody else? That <laughs> was somebody else. You can give me credit for the weather. <laughs> I made sure it snowed a day later. Uh, and nobody could get out of town. That's for sure. That does it for another edition of Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com. Hope you had enjoyed it as much as David and I did. I'd like to thank our guests, Andre Reed and Bill Bradley, and our executive producer, Dave Olson. So tune in again next time to Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com. <laughs>